Good morning. I invite you to take your Bibles this morning and to turn with me to Paul's letter to Titus. Titus chapter 1. As we look this morning at verses 10 to 16, if you're looking on one of our pew Bibles, it's going to be on page 998. Titus chapter 1. I'm going to begin reading here in just a moment in verse 10. An article in a recent edition of Table Talk magazine caught my eye. In fact, it was really just two sentences. And it was quite unnerving. It was quite disturbing to me. Here's what the article said. Two sentences. False teaching is a real threat to the church. It is not a threat only in certain circumstances or only in certain churches with a certain leadership structure or only in certain places and cultures in the world. False teaching is not just a problem for other people and other churches out there. It is a problem about which all believers and all churches must be vigilant and against which they must be on guard. I wonder, I wonder how many of you would say that the greatest threat, the greatest danger facing Second Baptist Church is not the loss of our religious liberties, it's not the moral decay of society and culture, it's not what's going on in public schools or in Hollywood, it's not what's being done in Springfield or in Washington, D.C. None of those things actually serve as the greatest threat to this church. No, I wonder how many of you would say that the greatest threat, the greatest problem, the greatest danger facing this church doesn't come from outside these walls, but from within. I wonder how many of you would say that the greatest threat being leveled against Second Baptist Church is in fact perhaps the danger of false teaching among us. And yet this is exactly the way the New Testament paints this picture, isn't it? Did you realize that almost every letter, nearly every New Testament letter, addresses the issue of false teaching within the church? For example, in the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul deals with teachers in Corinth who are denying the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Or in Galatians, Paul warns these believers about those who are saying that justification, being made right with God, is about Jesus plus something else, not by faith alone. Or in the letter to the Colossians, if you remember, where Paul is addressing some kind of strange Jewish mysticism that has found its way into this church. Or how about in the letter of 1 Thessalonians, where it seems that there were some within this church who were believing that the second coming had already happened. Or how about Peter's letter in 2 Peter, where he warns of false prophets who were secretly bringing in destructive heresies. James combats this idea where some were saying that good works were unnecessary or unimportant for Christian living. Or how about 1 John, as we read a moment ago, where they are denying that Jesus Christ had come in the flesh. 
over and over and over again, what you see throughout the New Testament is that it is a threat not from primarily outside the church, but from within. The picture you get is one of infiltration. False teachers slipping in among the church. The greatest threat facing churches actually comes from within. And I think you'd agree that this isn't just a first century problem, is it? This is a 21st century problem as well. It's a problem for us. And friends, the threat isn't just for some churches out there, but in here. Have you ever thought that Second Baptist Church could be susceptible to false teaching? A danger lurking among us. The danger is real. And so the question is, is how then do we deal with this ever-present problem? How, how do we address the lurking danger of false teaching among us? And this morning, we see Paul's answer for how to deal with the danger of false teaching. In verse 5, notice Paul reminds Titus why he had left him in Crete. Notice there, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town. Paul's answer for how to deal with false teaching in these churches was to appoint a plurality of godly, qualified Gifted, theologically discerning men. Verse 9, men who, notice, hold firmly to the trustworthy word. Who could then, notice verse 9, give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. This, this was Paul's answer. This was his remedy for dealing with false teaching in the church. And this morning, we discover why this is so urgent, why this is so necessary for Titus and for these elders and for our own church today of how to deal with false teaching and why it is so dangerous. Let's read Paul's words together this morning. I would invite you to stand with me as we read these words together. And just a reminder, the reason we stand is to honor these words from God himself. Verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Church, this is the word of the living God. 
May he write its truth on our hearts. You can be seated this morning. In verse 10, notice we're told why Paul had instructed Titus back in verse 5 to appoint elders in every church there in Crete. So verses 10 to 16, our our text this morning, is is intimately tied to what we saw last week in verses 5 to 9. And they're, they're connected there, notice, with that little word at the beginning of verse 10, for, or because. In verse 10, the reason that Titus was given the task of appointing elders, qualified elders, in every church, in verse 5, and the reason that these elders must be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and refute those who contradict it is because, verse 10, there were already many false teachers within these churches. Despite the fact that these These were fairly new church plants there on the island of Crete. Apparently, apparently, verse 10, many false teachers had already infiltrated these churches. Many false teachers had already made their way and slipped into these churches there in Crete. So this is an urgent matter. Titus must act quickly. He must appoint elders to deal with this issue. Verse 5, this Titus, is why I left you in Crete. Our outline this morning is a simple one. We're going to ask three questions of our text, and along the way, we're going to make some application. And I hope that as we do so, you'll see the relevance not only for these churches and for Titus, but also for our own church today as well. Question number one. Question number one, who were these false teachers? Who were these false teachers? Who were these guys? Well, meet, meet the false teachers. In verses 10 to 16, Paul, he gives us here, notice, a pretty clear picture, a pretty clear description of these false teachers. And while he, he doesn't specifically or even explicitly identify exactly what this false teaching was that was being peddled here in these churches, we, we sort of have to piece that together from clues in the context. What is abundantly clear, however, is what Paul thought of them. Notice how he characterizes and describes these guys. Verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, and deceivers. So, not exactly a very flattering picture of these guys, is it? Notice how Paul begins in verse 10 by characterizing these teachers, their, their attitudes, their, their words, their, their actions. And what I think you see here is really a, a pretty clear picture of every false teacher. From the 21st century to the 1st century, they, they all tend to fit into the same mold. Notice verse 10, they are insubordinate or rebellious. They reject authority. They love controversy. Unlike the faithful elders who, back in verse 9, hold firmly to the trustworthy word, these guys, these guys refuse to submit to authority. They refuse to submit to the authority of the gospel. They are insubordinate to God's authority because they do not submit themselves to his word. Verse 
10, notice also, they are empty talkers, meaningless chatter. They're teaching, it's, it's hollow, it's, it's fruitless, it's, it's void. They're just talking nonsense. They, they love endless, pointless speculation, not so much gospel application. As one commentator said, it's like cotton candy preaching. It is a lot of show and very little substance. They're empty talkers. And, and, and perhaps, worst of all, notice in verse 10, it's deceptive. They are deceivers. Their teaching, notice, is deceitful. Oh, it may give the impression of truth, but in reality, it's actually leading people away from the truth. It's, it's leading them astray. It, it, they, they may not come out and simply deny the truth, but they are supplementing the truth. Verse 14, they are actually, Paul says, turning away from the truth. Then in verse 11, notice we see motive. What's their motive? They are teaching for shameful gain. What, what drives these men is selfish advantage. They, they, they are leveraging and exploiting people for their own personal benefit. Listen, you find a false teacher and you won't have to look very far beneath the surface to find that the motivation is selfish ambition and personal gain. And what's perhaps even more disturbing here What's even more disturbing is that there are many in the church, in these churches here in Crete, and even in our own churches today, who are willing not only to listen to them, but they are supporting them. They're funding them. Their motive is shameful gain. Again, contrasting it with the faithful elders, notice in verse 7, who must not be greedy for gain. But then... If that weren't bad enough, I mean, if that, if that weren't scathing enough, notice in verse 12, Paul levels an indictment against them from one of their very own. Look there, verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Now, lest we think that this is some sort of ethnic slur or racist comment from the Apostle Paul, Paul is simply quoting here from one of their very own countrymen, a philosopher that many scholars think by the name of Epimenides, who, notice, had said about the Cretans that they are liars and Brutes and evil and untrustworthy. I mean, have you ever heard someone called a Cretan before? It's not exactly the most endearing term. And Paul says this is true of these false teachers. Verse 13, this testimony, notice, is true. In other words, notice what Paul is doing here. These false teachers, Paul is saying, are actually no different than the prevailing Cretan culture around them. They are actually, he's saying, just like the stereotypical pagan Cretans. This is a shocking statement that Paul is making here of these teachers. 
It would have been shocking to these false teachers who no doubt thought themselves distinct from and different from the culture. And it would be no uh, otherwise shocking statement to these people as well who were listening to them because as we're going to see here in just a moment, apparently these false teachers had a very strict moral code. And yet Paul is saying these guys are no different than the pagan Cretans around them. How's that? We'll come back to that in a moment. Hold that thought. Put a pin in that. This is how Paul describes these false teachers. So so who were these guys? And not only that, what exactly were they teaching? Well, again, while it would have been abundantly clear to Paul's original audience there in Crete and to Titus as well, who, who Paul is talking about here, you and I have to sort of discern who they were and what they were teaching from the context here. So, so, so what do we learn about their message from the context? Well, look through verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, and then notice what Paul says, especially those of the circumcision party. So notice here that their false teaching, it had a distinctively Jewish flavor to it. The circumcision party. These appear to be perhaps Jewish converts to Christianity there on the island of Crete. And and, and in fact, we know from outside historical sources from Josephus, the early Jewish historian, that there were actually at this time a large number of Jews on the island of Crete. Verse 10, Paul says, of the circumcision party. And we meet the circumcision party, if you remember elsewhere in Paul's ministry, This was a group of people who were known as the Judaizers. Remember in Galatians, Paul addresses them, and we actually even see them in the book of Acts in chapter 15. In fact, in Acts chapter 15, verse 1, listen to how they're described. But some men came down from Judea, that's why they're called the Judaizers, and they were teaching the brothers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, You cannot be saved. They were teaching that salvation was by faith in Christ plus circumcision. Sure, sure, faith in Christ may save you, but if you want to stay a Christian, if you want to grow as a Christian, if you want to be a good Christian, then you have to be circumcised. And they were actually wanting to make Gentile Christians subject to their Jewish Laws or subject them to some kind of external moral code to follow. In fact, notice how Paul describes their teaching here. Look there, verse 14. These false teachers are devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of men. Jewish myths. It's that. Paul isn't specific here, so we can only speculate what these myths or these stories or these legends were. He also calls them the commands of men. This isn't the trustworthy word. This isn't isn't the gospel. These, These aren't neither imperatives that are informed by the gospel. These aren't gospel commands for Christians. No, these are extra-biblical commands. These aren't the commands of God. These are the commands of men. 
Paul's letter to Timothy, 1 Timothy, in fact, if you want to turn there, 1 Timothy, we learn a little bit more about what these commands of men were. In Ephesus, where Paul writes to Timothy, to charge certain persons, certain false teachers, not to teach any different doctrine. So notice in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 4, he says, not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation. Or later in chapter 4, verse 3, he elaborates on these commands of men when he writes in verse 3, they forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. And so you see that, that, that for these false teachers, perhaps they were requiring one to abstain from marriage. They, they thought that maybe perhaps sexual relations inside the context of marriage, it was, it was defiling, and therefore they could remain pure by abstaining. Or they were even forbidding certain foods, these foods that maybe perhaps they thought to be uncomfortable clean, which was a means by which they could make themselves pure before God. And so what was their teaching? What, what was their message? They were teaching that these myths and these endless genealogies and these abstentions from certain things and requiring certain commandments to be obeyed, that actually they, they were advocating that all of these things were required for a genuine Christian. And Paul says in verse 11, they are teaching what they ought not to teach. Verse 14 they are actually turning away from the truth. They, they are rejecting the truth. They are rejecting the truth of the gospel that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And here, beloved, I, I think we see one of the most subtle and deadly dangers of any false teacher. One of the most sinister plots of the evil one. It is that the message has the appearance of truth. They dress up the gospel in words and in lingo and in Bible quotes and in terminology that sounds really familiar. It sounds really good. It sounds really wise. It sounds really intelligent and innovative and articulate. It sounds virtually right. And in fact, it might even be difficult to put your finger on exactly what's so wrong. And in most cases, it's as close to the truth as it can possibly be, but to be off an inch is to be off a mile. And what you find at the heart of every false teaching and every false teacher is an abomination of the biblical gospel. It is a Jesus plus theology. It is adding something to the gospel. You look at every religion, you look at every cult, you look at every sham TV preacher, and what you find over and over again is it is a perversion of the gospel that says it is by faith in Christ alone. It's a man-centered message. It's a what-I-can-do theology, teaching. It diverts the attention away from Christ onto me. And that's exactly what was happening in the churches in Crete. And sadly, that's, that's what's happening in many churches today. And some, 
something that we, too, we're not immune to. And therefore, decisive action must be taken. Question number two. Question number two. What does Paul say to do about them? What does Paul say to do with these false teachers? Well, notice, notice there in verses 11 and in verse 13, Paul gives two directives here to Titus and, and to these godly elders whom he will appoint in these churches. And, and notice here that we find these two directives, they are severe. There's nothing subtle about them, and we must be careful not to in any way soften them either. Brian Chappell comments, he says, to modern sensibilities, this does not seem like a very tolerant attitude, <laughs> does it? I mean, that, that's, that's the motto in our world today, isn't it? It's, it's tolerance, it's, it's simply acceptance, let's, let's just have an open mind, let's just have a dialogue, let's just agree to disagree, and Paul says, no! When it comes to the truth of the gospel, when the gospel is at stake, and we're talking here about matters of first importance, we're not talking about secondary issues. When it's a matter of first importance, when the gospel is at stake, Titus, listen, you and these elders, you must act swiftly and decisively and severely because otherwise, if you don't, it will spread. Verse 11, notice Paul's two directives, they must be silenced. Verse 13, rebuke them sharply. Andreas Kostenberger, he writes, Paul's recommended course of action here is not patient dialogue or peaceful arbitration for the sake of maintaining unity, or we may even say false unity in the church, these opponents must be silenced. What, what you see from verse 11 and verse 13, notice that when it comes to false teaching, Paul has a zero-tolerance policy. Verse 11, they are to be silenced, meaning they, they are to be stopped in the mouth. Literally, they, they are to be muzzled. They are to be bridled. They are to be stopped. They are to be shut up. Verse 13, they are to be rebuked sharply, or we could say severely and rigorous, rigorously. The, the verb there actually, it means, it means to cut. That This kind of reproof is to cut with penetrating force. This is how the elders are to respond to this teaching. And given here that the elders, as we saw last week, are to be able, notice in verse 9, to rebuke those who contradict the truth, this silencing here, this rebuking here, it would appear that it comes probably most likely in the form of the elder's teaching, in the form of the elder's instruction. In other words, what I mean is that the elders are to rebuke and silence them with their faithful teaching. But I don't think we should limit it to that alone. No, this silencing, this rebuking, it could mean the form of a private conversation with the individual. It could also mean a person is removed from teaching in a public setting. It could mean that church discipline is enacted on this person. In fact, if you read later, notice in chapter 3, verse 9, 
Paul's going to say to Titus, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are up unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with them, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So it could mean enacting church discipline. It could mean that a public rebuke is made. But notice here, whatever it is, it must be handled swiftly and immediately by the elders, Paul says. And notice why. Notice Paul gives us two reasons why this is so important. Why it must be acted upon so quickly by these elders. Look there, reason number one. Look there, verse 11. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families. John Stott, he comments here, he says, the need to take action is due to their growing influence. The false teaching is beginning to spread. This isn't just affecting here a few individuals. No, notice whole families are being affected. Or you could translate it households. And we don't know if Paul means here literal nuclear families, or he's talking about the homes in which the early church would meet, but whatever the case, the influence here, it's spreading. They're they are wreaking havoc, notice, on entire churches, on entire families, these newly formed churches there in Crete. And Paul says decisive action has to be taken by Titus and the elders. And, and I don't think it's hard to imagine, I mean, think about this, it's not hard to imagine Based on what we know about this false teaching here and, and what we saw not only here but over in 1 Timothy, why this was upsetting whole families. I mean, think about it. If they are forbidding marriage for those who are coming to faith in Christ, these Cretan believers, them and their families, them and their spouses, they're coming to faith in Christ and they're saying, no, 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 to be genuinely Christian marriage is forbidden, can you see how this might have an adverse effect on families? Can you see that? Or requiring certain dietary laws of Gentile believers that are infringing upon their personal convictions. And Paul says they must be silenced. Which, by the way, this is just a side note, genuinely Gospel-centered teaching and preaching, it unifies Christians. It doesn't send them into a tailspin. That's one way to identify a false teacher, friends. Yes, while the gospel causes division, turmoil, maybe among unbelievers, the message of Christ unifies believers and churches. It brings harmony. It brings hope, not destruction and disruption and division. That's false teaching. And so they're upsetting whole families. But notice the second reason in verse 13. Rebuke them sharply, Paul says, that they may be sound in the faith. Souls are at stake here. Notice that word sound, as we saw last week, meaning healthy or coming from a, a word from which we get the word hygiene. 
sound, verse 13, sound in the faith. Notice the definite article there. This is the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. This is the the gospel. Verse 13, Paul instructs Titus to rebuke them sharply that they may be rightly established in the gospel. Souls are actually at stake here. Now when Paul says in verse 13 that they may be sound in the faith, does he mean they as in the false teachers or does he mean they as in the Cretan believers? Which is it? Well, I think frankly you could probably say that he means both here. He means both. As one commentator said, the rebuke is not punitive or vindictive. It has a restorative aim. In other words, this rebuke here, it is, it is offered in love. It is offered in love by these elders who are protecting the flock. And it is offered in, in a love that holds out hope to this false teacher that says, please come back to the truth. What you're teaching is wrong. It is false. So that they may be one to the truth. Not unlike what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 where he says, The Lord's servant, the elder, he must not be quarrelsome, but correcting his opponent with gentleness that God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. To appoint godly elders who by their teaching guard the gospel and protect the flock of God. And to myself and Brian and Johnny, I would just remind us, brothers, this is the task God has called us to. This is what God has called us to do. But by way of application, church, for for all of us, let me ask this question. How do we as a church, how do we as a church actively guard ourselves and guard this church from the dangers of false teaching? Yes, it is the elders' responsibility But it is not just the elders, is it? In fact, do you remember Paul's letter to the Galatians? Paul's letter to the Galatians, he rebukes them for allowing false teachers into the church. Who does he rebuke? He doesn't rebuke the elders, although they would be accountable. He rebukes the church. Guarding the church from false teaching is a collective effort. So how do, how do we collectively do this? How do we, how do we collectively guard ourselves from false teaching? Well, well first of all, not, not only do we need to know the gospel well, not only do we need to know the scriptures well for ourselves, that's one way, but also it means that we have in place many faithful, qualified, gifted, theologically discerning elders If there are many false teachers, what's the answer? Many faithful elders. If you have many faithful elders in place, it will root out false teaching. It will root out anything contrary to the gospel. It will protect the gospel and guard the flock. Elders aren't optional. And therefore, maybe what we need is many faithful elders. More so. 
But second, I, I think we see here that one of the ways we guard ourselves as well as a church is that we realize the importance of discipling one another in the church. What you're going to see as we move into chapter 2 next week, you're going to see this. You're going to see that there must be a culture within the church of discipleship that is happening. Where we not only know the gospel well ourselves, but we are teaching it to one another as well. You're going to see that it is older believers who are instructing and teaching younger believers. You're going to see that in chapter 2. And this is, in fact, actually an important way that we guard the gospel and we protect the church from false teaching. And might I add, a very neglected ministry in many, perhaps most, churches where older believers are discipling younger believers. It can happen in small groups. It can happen in one-on-one discipleship relationships where you're meeting together, you're studying the Bible, you're reading good, solid theology books, and you're discipling someone who's younger in the faith. But when each believer in the church is being discipled in the gospel, it will guard the church from false teaching. This is how Paul instructs Titus and the elders to deal with, with false teaching. But he doesn't stop there. In fact, in fact, notice in verses 15 and 16, notice he reminds Titus why this kind of teaching that is going on in many of these churches is such a big deal. Why this false teaching is so dangerous and deadly to the church. Question number three, last question. Why is their teaching so dangerous? What's so deadly about it? Well, we see it, notice in verses 15 and 16. Notice in these two verses here that Paul, he he addresses the content of their teaching. We, We get a glimpse here into what these false teachers the circumcision party, what what they were teaching, and why it has to be silenced, why it has to be rebuked. William Mounts, he comments, he says in verse 15. The opponent's teaching now comes to the forefront. So, so here their, their, their teaching comes center stage. And notice it comes down to these categories of purity and defilement. Verse 15. Notice what Paul says. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are Defiled. In verse 15, this statement here, it, it may at first glance appear a bit cryptic, a bit puzzled, but in reality what Paul is doing here, this short proverbial statement that he makes here, Paul's actually doing two things I want you to see here. There's two, two things he wants to draw our attention to in this statement, I think. Two things. Verse 15, notice, we're going to call them thing one and thing two. First thing, notice, verse 15, he addresses what was wrong with their teaching. George Knight, he comments, the implication of this verse, verse 15, is that these false teachers had been requiring the observance of rules concerning ritual purity. So in effect, this statement in verse 15, it's Paul's answer, it's his response, it's his rebuttal to these false teachers and what they were teaching about purity. Verse 15, to the pure, 
All things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, everything is defiled. You see, the false teachers, they taught that one's purity before God, and by contrast, their defilement as well, they were based on observing certain commands. They, they were about abstaining from certain practices. That one's purity before God and their right standing with God, it was, it was based on whether or not a person followed certain rules, they did or did not do certain things, whether they followed their list of commands and whether they abstained from their list of practices. They taught that the morally pure person is defiled by eating certain things and touching certain things. This was their understanding of the source of purity and defilement. But in verse 15, notice Paul completely turns that way of thinking on his head. He says, no, this is completely opposite to what the gospel actually says. John Stott, he says, that the problem with these false teachers is that they have a false understanding of purity. External practices don't make a person pure. They are not the source of purity or defilement. Because then notice what Paul, he does something else here with this statement in verse 15. This is thing two. Verse 15, Paul reflects here on Jesus' own words about the source of purity and defilement. Paul knew his scriptures. And he knew that Jesus had already addressed this false teaching. Jesus had already addressed this category of purity and defilement. What makes a person pure and what defiles them. You remember? Mark chapter 7, turn there with me. You need to see this. Mark 7, hold your place there in Titus. Jesus is in a conflict with the Pharisees. He's addressing this issue of purity and defilement. And the Savior, he calls them out as hypocrites, saying that they leave the commandments of God and they hold to the traditions of men. And then notice in verse 14 what he says. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand, there is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then Mark adds this editorial comment down in verse 19. Thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus continues, verse 20. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. The Pharisees along with these false teachers in Crete, 
believed that they were righteous in God's sight because they practiced certain external observable things. They thought that by their religious practices and their man-made rules, they believe it protected them from impurity and defilement and it commended them as righteous before God but these Pharisees and the false teachers in Crete as well they didn't understand the true nature of defilement defilement doesn't come from certain foods it doesn't come from touching certain things Defilement springs from, it flows from the heart. Not what you touch. Not what you eat. Which is why Mark makes that sweeping categorical statement in verse 19 where he says, Thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus has just now done away with all of the Old Testament food laws. Why? Because they could never truly purify you or defile you. That's not the source of defilement and purity. No, the only one who could truly purify them has now come. But listen, Jesus isn't only pronouncing here, all foods are clean. Do you see what else he's saying? Listen, he's saying, every heart is defiled. Every heart is defiled. Every human heart is defiled. There is no one exempt from the defilement of sin. And this is what the false teachers in Crete, they didn't get. No matter what religious practices they observed, no matter what things they abstained from, their hearts were still defiled. Which is why, which is why Paul can compare these religiously moral false teachers to the pagan Cretan culture around them. Why? Because they're both still defiled. In fact, verse 16, notice, they're detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Why? Because they are defiled. Verse 15, they are defiled and unbelieving They do not believe the gospel that their cleansing must be internal and that only comes through faith in Christ. And therefore, Paul says, nothing is pure. No, both their minds, he says, and their consciences are defiled. Everything they do, everything they touch is defiled. Oh, sure, they they may be more religious, they may be more moral than the other Cretans, checking off more religious boxes than everyone else around them, but their hearts are still defiled by sin. And friends, listen, ours are as well if we think that we can cleanse them ourselves. If we think that there is something that we can do to cleanse our own hearts, to think that you can cleanse yourself, Scrub yourself clean. Purify your own heart by what you do or don't do, by what you observe or what you abstain from is completely contrary to the gospel. It is an abomination to the gospel. It is a false gospel that cannot save you. 
Is that you this morning? Are some of you this morning in this room trying as best you can by the things that you do or you don't do to purify your own hearts? To cleanse yourself? But, verse 15, notice what Paul says. To the pure, all things are pure. Now, who's that? Who are the pure? And if this purity, it doesn't come from something I do, where does it come from? Chapter 2, verse 14, Paul says, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Who are the pure? Chapter 3, verse 5, He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Who are the pure? The pure are those who recognize the defilement of their own hearts. The pure are those who recognize that they could never cleanse themselves before God and the sin of their hearts before God and they know that only God himself can do this. The pure are those who through the gospel, through the person and work of Jesus Christ, know that cleansing is only available through his sinless life and his substitutionary death on the cross and that is the only way that a person can be purified. It is only by faith in him and his shed blood on the cross for our sins to cleanse every stain. It is the only way. Only the blood of Christ can cleanse our sin. So let me ask you, have you been made pure? Is your heart pure before God this morning? Because you can walk out of here this morning with a pure heart, cleansed from every sin, every defilement, and it's only one way. It only comes through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And now verse 15, Paul says, through, notice, the transforming, purifying power of the gospel, look what he says, to the pure to the pure, for, for those whose hearts have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, verse 15, to the pure of heart, all things now, all things are pure, not defiling. And thus for the pure, they don't regard the things forbidden as these false teachers did as defiling. No, these are good gifts to be enjoyed by God. Marriage, food, it doesn't defile me. Disregarding man-made rules and traditions don't defile me. Celebrating or not celebrating certain days or holidays, it doesn't defile me. Nor does abstaining from things purify me. No, the pure recognize that true purity, true righteousness, true godliness, it only comes from a heart that has been purified and cleansed by the gospel. It's something internal, not external. 
Listen, the, the gospel, it doesn't produce a tedious list of rules to be followed. Do you see that? No, the, the gospel produces transformed hearts, purified, who now love God and obey God and desire to please God and to know God because their hearts have been purified. In fact, in verse 15, excuse me, 16, that's exactly what we see the problem with the false teachers was. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. How is that possible? I mean, look at all the good stuff they did. Look at all the moral stuff they performed, and yet it was all external. It was all religious. Their hearts were still defiled. There was no true spiritual fruit There was no genuine love for God and devotion to God. It was all external. It was all religion. And thus it was false. It was a false gospel. It could save no one. It could purify no one. And Paul says, that's why it's so deadly. That's why you've got to swiftly cut it off so that it doesn't spread in the church. But to the pure, Paul says, who've been transformed by the gospel. All things are now pure. Let's pray. Lord, what a gracious promise and reminder that through the gospel of Christ, our hearts have been cleansed and purified from every sin and every stain. Oh Lord, may we never grow weary of hearing and be reminded of that truth. Thank you, Christ, that you gave your life on the cross, shed your blood so that our sins could be cleansed. Lord, I pray that that truth would transform your people in such a way that we would leave this place walking in the purity that we have in the gospel that it would change and shape the way that we live, the decisions that we make, the things that we are involved in, the way in which we conduct ourselves. May true purity of heart transform our lives. May you help us as those you've called to lead this church, for everyone who makes up this church, to guard ourselves from teaching that would be contrary to this message. Empower us for this task, Lord, that we may guard the truth of the gospel because it is the only message that can purify. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand, please. Oh, to see the dawn of the darkest day Christ on the road to Calvary Tried by sinful men Torn and beaten then Nailed to a cross of wood This the power of the cross Christ became Sin for us took the blame, bore the wrath we stood.
sins and forgiven at the cross. Oh, to see the pain written on your face, bearing the awesome weight of sin. Every bitter thought, every evil deed, crowning your blood-stained brow. This the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath we stand forgiven at the cross. Now the daylight flees, the ground beneath quakes as its maker bows his head. Curtain torn in two, dead are raised to life, finish the victory cry. This the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, bore the wrath we stand forgiven at the cross. Oh, to see my name written in the wounds, for through your suffering I am free. Death is crushed to death, life is mine to live, one through your selfless love. This the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us, took the blame, for the wrath we stand forgiven at the cross. What a glorious truth that is that we are forgiven through the cross. Our hearts can be purified only through the cross. So as you go today, I, I would encourage you to not only get involved in your small group tonight, I hope you're there to discuss, to apply, to encourage one another, pray for one another. But as you even go today, I pray that you would walk out of this room walking in the purity that is found only in the gospel. And I pray that as you go, that would enable you this week to walk in a way that is pleasing to him as your heart is continually transformed by this message. You are dismissed.